Hello and welcome to Don't Shoot the Deputies, a podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. Hello, Steve. Hello, Russell, and hello to everyone listening. And we're absolutely buzzing today because we're fortunate enough to have an absolute gem of a human being with us, Jazz Amplifier. Jazz, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Thank you for saying I'm a gem. I'm well, you a are. I've never had that before. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I thought I first came across you, Jazz, on Twitter. Loved your vibe, loved your positivity. But when I watched your TED Talk for the first time, I realized I'd seen you somewhere before because oh. I was a bit of a hardcore fan of The Apprentice, I have to admit, and I had watched that series um, <laughs> featured on. So could you give us just a little bit of a background to kind of you know, reverse time? How did your life take you to that point where you found yourself on the BBC's Apprentice? Wow. Okay. So full disclosure, I am addicted to appearing on reality TV shows, but I only do it once every 20 years. So, I have control. <laughs> so when I was 20, I was on blind date as a picker. Um, yeah, I got a free holiday and uh, well, the blind date was awful because he, it was on the best of blind date in the worst date category every year for the next nine years. So it was a hideous day. He left me in this romantic restaurant, climbed out the window in the toilet, went to McDonald's. That's for another time. But it took me 20 years to get over that. And then uh, I went on The Apprentice when I was 40. I'm 50 now, I've got 10 years, but I know in 10 years time, I'm applying to Love Island. That's my next reality TV show. Amazing. I told my husband, he's impressed. So <laughs> The Apprentice, it's been 20 years. I'm like, what am I gonna do? But seriously, I was working as a literacy consultant at the time. Um, and I was watching the show and I've got like a spelling scheme around me and I'm looking at it thinking, God, these people are so thick. I mean, just make a sense. They need some leadership. They need a teacher. Has there, a t has there ever been a teacher on this show? I'm Googling, no, any teacher on The Apprentice. But that's what we should do. We'll get a teacher on there, it'll all be good. So before I knew what had happened, I'd applied and got on. And no, what, no word of a lie. I went to the audition in Birmingham, right? I hadn't even told my husband. I came out, of the, I got through all five rooms, I got to the end. I had to ring my husband and say, yeah, I'm going to be away for three months. You're all right to pick the kids up. Because I had <laughs> no plan other than to get on there and sort everybody out. So my, my kind of plan was like a literacy scheme that um, it was like washing monsters for spelling so that children could use it at home and school. I was fed up with this whole thing. We care about you, but not at weekends and not at half term <laughs> and in schools and being in care. Because I, I grew up in the care system. I'd moved around and my records never followed me and I had to start again all the time. And it came out of that, really. Um, so that was my kind of idea. And, and you kind of think, is it worth looking a bit stupid for? Yes, it is. Because if, if kids win, we win. So is it worth me going on The Apprentice looking a bit stupid? Yes. Having said that, I did get fired in the first week, which is more than a little stupid. <laughs> monumentally embarrassing. And it's been the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, for the rest of my life now. Look, people keep doing the lucky cat wave. I get stopped in the street. And, oh, you like, oh, but also, oh, this is really good. I live on the same estate as Nard. Is it Nardia from Bake Off? Oh, no, Nardia. Yeah. Oh. Do you know they locked my husband over yesterday when he was jogging? <laughs> Surely you're going to get a cake for that. <laughs> surely, surely. I'm going to put a note through it all. But what's interesting is because we're both female and brown, obviously everyone gets us mistaken. The fact that she wears a headscarf and I don't, nothing. So people come up to me often on ours and go, oh my gosh, you were on that show. And I go, yeah, waiting for them to take the miss out of me. And they go, you won Bake Off. And I go, yes, I did. <laughs> now and again, I get to look like a winner. So it happened because I have no fear of getting it wrong. Like, mm -hmm. I'm, it's not what if I get it wrong, I'm going to get it wrong. I will fail, I have failed, I will continue to fail. But what I know how to do is reframe. And that is down 
to the spectacular everyday heroes of my life who all happen to be teachers. I went on The Apprentice because I'm not, genuinely, I am free from fear of failure, genuinely. And that <clears throat> is a liberated way to live. Mm. And now, Jazz, talking about your TED Talk, actually, um, as you just mentioned, like you're putting into care at the age of eight uh, following some horrendous abuse. And uh, in education, we talk a lot about adverse childhood experiences now and you describe yourself as being a bit of a broken little girl um for children who are extremely anxious and i can think of a lot at the moment and distrustful of adults um what advice would you give to the teaching community of what to do and how to work with these children oh thank you for asking that question Mm. because for a long time it's like there's two types of kids old Mm. world you know we're the old normal we're in a new normal we're going to be in a new and different normal but Old world, two types of kids, order navigators, chaos navigators. School is designed for order navigators. Those kids know their love. They have food at home. They have a parent who cares them. They have a washing machine. They have a fridge full of food. They, they, someone tells them a story. They look after them. They get them to school. They turn up at school ready to learn. Mm. Chaos navigators might not have anyone at home. They might be protecting their own siblings from the violence of their own parents. They might be trying not to be swayed into selling drugs by their sister's new boyfriend who's moved up into their house. They might be trying to get their own brothers and sisters to school in the morning or avoid being hurt by the people who are supposed to love them. And if those kids make it in school, and it's a freaking miracle if they do, when they do get there, they're waiting for things to kick off. Because, yeah, they haven't had breakfast, so they're a bit on edge. They haven't got the right blazer, so they're breaking the rules before they get in the door. It's all going to kick off. And the thing is that school becomes an adverse childhood experience an Mm -hmm. additional adverse childhood experience but i am what happens when a system is failing but individuals stand by their why i am what happens when that happens so in spite of the brokenness that is around our system and in spite of the chaos that rules now because what's happened now is that we're all chaos navigators now it might be the chaos of navigating trying not to be sexually abused and the chaos of navigating not being able to go to nando's for three months They might be different, but they're all chaos and it's relative to what you've experienced before. So when we go back, not only are the students going to be navigating chaos, so are the teachers, so are the leaders, so are the parents. Now, I think that school has shown itself for what it always was during this time of lockdown, so much more than an academic institution. When you limit it to the highest and best we can do is get a decent set of SATs, a decent set of GCSEs, you're missing the point because what school has always done is met people where they are in a way that the administration could never do. That's why the administration is good at data and testing and that's that they, it has to be but the human to human interaction is so much more than getting people from a to b and so for me one thing i i kind of look back on and realize is that as a chaos navigator being led by an order navigator the most harmful thing that i think school was and it was never intentional was it made it look like being an order navigator was the norm so because i was a chaos navigator i automatically wasn't in the in crowd so i was mm-hmm. on the on, wrong side so i was wrong so my identity like identity you can choose yourself i can identify as the housewife from la county but belonging requires agreement and belonging is the powerful turning point so because i i didn't feel like i belonged at school because the the norm was not my norm like i wasn't middle class i wasn't white i wasn't you know i, I was too many things to not be in the box and, it, and again no one did this intentionally it was it was all it was in the things that people didn't think about you know, the st- like the stern faces that you get when you're doing something wrong or when even when you're walking, you might not, people are expecting you to do something wrong. That's the same expression I got from my stepdad at home. You know, being isolated 
I got isolated out, I got stuck in the cellar. It's the same thing. It might be a better cellar, it might look nicer, but I'm still being taken away because I am not worthy to be with everyone else. So there were so many parallels between the chaos I navigated at home and, and then the chaos that I had to navigate at school. It made it now not impossible for me to do anything other than fit that self-fulfilling prophecy of not being worth it. Because mm -hmm. it, it, it kind of, it felt like I was held accountable for my own disadvantage. And this was at secondary school in particular, at primary it was a bit more nurturing. So the difference that it makes is not school changing, it's not the system changing, it's the glimmers of light, it's the smiles, it's the smallest acts of kindness, it's the true connection that people make, it's the assuming the best rather than assuming the worst, it's the knowing that if I'm kicking off about something, yeah, it could be that I hate you and I lie awake at night thinking of ways to annoy you, yes it's possible, or it could be that you're not that important because I have bigger things in my life to be coping with and actually what you're seeing now is distressed behavior i'm not challenging you i am in distress and i don't have the words or the emotional literacy to ask for help so it's kind of that way of being it's that intentional way of being and the biggest and most important things people can do when school is on again is to be honest about where they are mm. because i was drawn to people who could be honest about the fact that in some parts in some ways they were also navigating chaos because i knew what it was to be scared and vulnerable and not know if you were good enough and what I got from school is, that's not how we are. That's not who, so I had to try and pretend not to be. And the teachers who could say to me, you know, I'm not saying you go in and go, look, I'm an alcoholic, I watch Netflix all night, and I might have accidentally got involved in some human traffic on the way to school. They two don't need all that information. But I'm talking about being professionally vulnerable and personally authentic. And that is not what you get paid for, and it's not in teaching standards, but it's an intentional choice of how you show up for the humans that are in front of you and seeing them as mm. more than the numbers we have to put them down as, but seeing them as the faces and the names that you know they are. And I think that is the biggest difference to me. That is the reason I didn't give up. That's the reason I'm not dead is because people treated me with a value that I didn't believe I had and that mm. made it accessible for me to get into school and stay into school I don't even know if that answers it but I'm th that question is probably you know the, the the hardest one for me to answer because it requires me to be honest about the people like in a situation you could do something to make it better do something to make it worse or do nothing and two of those make it worse yeah five teachers did something to make it better most of them did nothing it's the perfect answer jazz it's the perfect it answer because what schools are so obsessed with is things that can go on an action plan and I'm bored of things that can go on an action plan and I'm much more interested in how what you're talking about the human connection is the foundation of everything we do and you're right that that's really brought that home at the moment and you've taken me beautifully onto something I did want to ask you about you talk about these everyday heroes these teachers that did something maybe slightly different however subtle um, you talk about them in your talk Mr Williams, Mrs Cook, Mr Simpson, Miss Archer, Mr Redmond what was it about them? What were some of the things those people did? Just give us some, some examples. Oh, beautiful. M Mrs. Cook used to um, ask us, who are you going to be when you grow up? Not what are you going to do? Who are you going to be? And I remember one yeah. kid put his hand up and says, I'm going to be a daddy. And we all laughed at him because she meant jobs, obviously. And she <laughs> said, don't let anyone laugh at your dream. If that's who you're going to be, then that's who you're going to be. Hold mm. on to it. And then it was my turn and she said, who are you going to be? And I lost it. I mean, I love this woman. I loved her and she loved me. She never said it, but I knew. I knew in the way she, her manner, her, her mindset towards me. I knew it. I knew it was true. And she said, who are you going to be? And I'm like, oh, Mrs. Cook is talking to me. I just lost it. And I went, I want to be just like you. And there was this moment. And when I tell people this, they go, oh, she didn't do that. She didn't go for the kind of immediate accidental, oh gosh, that's so cute or sympathy. Mm -hmm. She went straight for action. She looked me dead in the eye and she went, you mean you want to be a teacher? 
And I remember thinking, well, I can't, me, no. Like she always wore brown. I thought that was a thing. I'm like, I haven't got enough brown clothes. <laughs> Cut it off being a teacher. I, but, but the way she was looking at me gave me the impression that it was a done deal. She already believed it was possible and that I was behind by not believing. So get with the program. And I said, yeah, okay. And she didn't even flinch. She said, that's a great idea. You should absolutely do that because you, you would make an awesome educator. And it was like she tied this gold rope around my waist and hammered the other end into a stake 20 years in the future and set me on. I mean, I can't tell, she probably doesn't even remember doing that, right? But it changed my life. Mm. Also, she, when I was, um, I tell a story in my keynotes when I um, had run away from home, run away from school, I was living with a pimp. He'd taken me shopping and he was buying clothes that were, you know, appropriate for a prostitute, but not appropriate for an 11 year old. And I was standing in this changing room holding a dress and my, I'm breaking down. I'm, I've got, I haven't got words. I'm just, I know I'm not safe. School's not looking for me. My parents aren't looking for me. I'm breaking down. And one clear thought comes to mind. And that thought was, there is no way that Mrs. Cook would wear this outfit. I haven't seen her for seven years at that stage because leadership isn't what you do. It's what happens when you're not even in the room. That woman impressed upon me something so huge that when I was in the greatest state of breaking down, I could think of her and think she wouldn't have done this. And it was enough. Mm. It took me out of the change room into a police station where I handed myself in and went into foster care. She doesn't even know that. She saved my life. Because wow. it wasn't what she did, it was how she was. It wasn't the, like I talk about, I don't have a to-do list, that's pointless. I have a to-be to list. I have a to-feel list. And I write things on there. How do I want to feel at the end of this meeting, the end of this, this day, the end of this dinner with my kids? And I, I move towards that. I do stuff that will take me towards that. And I don't write, I want to be bitter, twisted, knackered, exhausted, and hateful, because <laughs> I don't want to be like that. So I end up doing things that will take me towards my to-be list. The teachers that impacted my life knew why they were in the room. They, they probably didn't know much about behavior. Mr. Williams didn't have a clue, but he knew why he was in the room. And, and it was that consistency. I talk about ACE relationships, which is my yep. kind of antidote to adverse childhood experiences, the same acronym. ACE relationships, that's what they built with me. Authenticity, consistency, and high expectations embedded. They didn't let me off. Oh, well, because you're not very good at math. Never mind, you're Brian. You're going to be a brother. You're going to be an athlete. Keep doing that. Actually, one teacher did that. Say that to me. <laughs> Don't worry about your math. You can run fast, love. You're going to be an athlete. I'm like, thanks for that mild racism and lack of challenge. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> but it's this thing about, I, I, it's not that I don't, it's not, I don't care where you're from or what you've got. I don't care that you can't access. It's that I believe in you and there's nothing you can do to change that. So I am mm. going to live and communicate and connect with you as if success is possible. When you're ready, come join me. It's that, it's that, that's what they did. And Jilly and Jeff and Mr. Simpson weren't my kind of people. They were very straight, very kind of introverted, not very expressive, all the sort of, sort of kind of aspects that really I wouldn't connect with. Mm. So it's not about personality, but it was, it was the consistency, it was the authenticity, and it was the embedded high expectation. Like Jilly, last story, because I know you're supposed to ask questions, I'm supposed to wait, but Jilly, um, she, I failed on my A-levels. No, I got two E's. Let's not, let's, let's, let's not lie. I got two E's. Um, and I'm like, and I was in um, a community house and I was going to have to move out of community house and I couldn't get to university because I failed. So I've got nothing, no A-levels. I failed. I've got the care systems finished with me. I'm going to be on the streets with 250 quid. That's where I'm at. So I'm fuming and I'm raging against the system and I'm raging against Jilly. And she says to me, well, if you were truly committed, you'd ring, you'd ring every university in the country until you got a place. And I'm like, that would take all day. And she said, oh, I'm glad you've got a plan. So I went home seething and I thought, I'll, I'll, I'll show her, I'll show her. So I started ringing and I rang Aberystwyth University and they, they, had, they had a Welsh accent and I couldn't understand a word, I had to put the phone down. 
because I've never left like my hometown <laughs> in my life. I was so closeted. And then the next one I read, I, I rang Aberdeen University and the lady said, and I said, oh yeah, yeah, I got two E's. And she said, two E's, that's amazing. Come for an interview. And I was like, no, no, two E's, two E's. And, like, oh, no. and I put the phone down and I thought, hold on, E sounds a bit like A if you're Scottish. Now, I've always wanted to be Scottish because I hold Scottish people in high regard. So the only problem now is that I was born the wrong side of the border, easily remedied. So I went to B, like ignore the A's as if they all talk. I went to B and I called Bishop Grossetest College and I said, hello, my name's Jan, I got two E's. And they were like, come for an interview. So I put the phone down, I'm like, yes. And they're like, oh God, no, what have I done? What is your plan, Jack? You're going to pretend to be Scottish for four years. What they're going to see your, so I had no plan. And I went to the interview and I got in there and I was going to just fess up and tell the truth. And there was this guy in there and he had like, like blonde hair, it looked like straw, like a horse had been eating it. It was all over dots <laughs> and hair, it was all over it. And I got distracted by his hair. And, and he's, before I could talk, he said, oh, you're from this estate. You're from, my cousin worked there as a youth worker. He said that girls leave school at 12 because they're pregnant. How have you managed to finish school? How are you actually here? I said, let me tell you a story. <laughs> Mr. Williams and Mr. Simpson and Miss Archer. And, and I told him about Mr. Cook. And he said at the end, I tell you what, if you promise me to be more authentic, I promise to get you a place at this teacher training college. And I didn't know what authentic meant. So I said, yes. And then I looked it up afterwards and thought, oh God, I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Here's how I got into teacher training college. That's amazing. I, mean, mm. I someone has been looking after me because I should be dead. I should not be here. No word of a lie. When I talk about how teachers change lives, I'm not talking about it in some namby pamby nice little way. Isn't it great to be kind? No, mm. I'm talking about the fact that statistics say I should not be who I am and I should not be alive with a family and with this mindset. And I am, and I don't have anywhere else to put it to apart from the teachers that saved my life. That's the level of importance. Wowza. So, Jazz, there's a phrase you use which um, resonates with me. You talk about ambitious resilience. Yeah. And I think traditionally, um, particularly in the modern society, we're taught that um, resilience is something we, we build. And I'm just curious, do you see it as something we build or do you see it as something we kind of uncover? Is it something that's there? That's nice. Because I know it's just semantics to a certain extent. It's just words. But... I don't know. I just, you know, earlier when you were talking about kids coming to school when they shouldn't even been able to and like the strength that takes, like for me, that's resilience. That's like, yeah, we often see, we have like a deficit model. I think sometimes with the way we look at people as if they're missing something. What I see in the, well, in your story, I see someone that was just extraordinary from the start and you just had people point you to that. I don't know. What do you think? Oh, thank you. I mean, I know how many times I gave up. I know how many times I wanted to die. So I guess I, I want to see it like that. I want to see it like that. I think there's, there's three R's of resilience. And I think resilience and reinvention are very close together. I think they might mm. be the same thing. I think resilience and reinvention, because people think resilience is being a doormat or, or submitting to stuff. And that's not what it is. Mm. It, it, there's an intentionality about resilience. And I think um, you can be accidentally resilient but you can't accidentally reinvent yourself. But I think res resilience and reinvention are the same. And the three R's around reinvention, the same three R's for resilience. The first one is responsibility. You have responsibility for something. Like I had to look after my brothers and sisters. I was their mum. Mm. But also in doing that, I was forced. Like change happens because you're inspired, or inspiration or desperation. And I was desperate. So, so I had to do something. And that meant that I, I took responsibility up into the edge of what I could control and no further. Like I couldn't be responsible for the stuff I couldn't control. Mm. So 
but and that's the thing I think a thing that order navigators indulge in a bit same as imposter syndrome we, as an order navigator I indulge in you know worrying about stuff I can't do anything about because because I can but mm. like I remember at school a teacher once asked me and said my, that my nails were mm. dirty and said why don't you get your mum to clean them when she puts you to bed tonight and I just I was looking at him like are you insane why would I invite my parents to talk to me or touch are you mad but I couldn't it's like that's out of my control I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna like engage with it but and I remember my look and I wasn't kind to him and I think I did spit on his shoe as well but that got me a detention <laughs> which for me kind of like says you know you're not even allowed to ask the you're not allowed to think mm. this or ask these so I kept it to myself but I think responsibility to, to do what you're responsible for and no more is important and schools can support that by rewarding children for what they're responsible for like attendance right when you get an egg you get a chocolate egg because you've been in hundred you get a badge if you're five right you're probably not getting yourself up in the morning getting yourself dressed buying you from getting to school that's someone else attendance is something that school gets measured on don't put it on the kids as a child i would watch people getting rewarded for being at school thinking i would kill for some chocolate i would but there's no way i can get that prize there's no way i can do it so so reward me for things that i can do reward me for me rather than the stuff that someone else has decided or done for me so taking responsibility for what i can control and no more that's the first way to build embed create resilience the second way is to reach out there's nothing cool about doing it yourself and i'm speaking to everyone here but specifically men we need strong men who are able to ask for help because they are the best role models and men that don't ask for help just it, you know i've got two sons i'm married to a guy who we've worked on the sort of struggle of not you know asking for help and, and i'm not i'm not being sexist it's not a, it's not just for men because women do this too but i just i have so much love for men in primary education in particular but in education in general and the role models they set when there isn't one at home is so mm. like i learned what a husband looks like what a dad looks like what a good man looks like from watching the waggle in the waggle in school the what a good one looks like of the men that were in school so what i don't need is more masculine crap about i'll do it myself i don't need i don't need that what i need is someone to show me what it is what you what to do when you don't know what to do because I'm, I was a boy. I modelled myself on being masculine. I wanted to be a boy. I wore trousers, cut my hair short, changed my name. Part of it was trying to avoid the abuse, but part of it was like clearly men are more valuable and powerful. Why would I want to be female? I want to be a man. So th there was. But I would always look for, you know, and and it was always that what I saw were, in order to be a man, I would have to give up my willingness to use all the resources available, and I I could never get down with that. Mm. So reaching out reaching out beyond what you believe to be your garden of possibility beyond what you believe to be possible you know and people say i've done everything i can and it's like no you've done everything you can think of you've not mm -hmm. done everything you can mm -hmm. <laughs> there's always something out there. that's your john raleigh since you say that but it, it's that thing of like reach out keep asking the questions don't look for, don't have all the answers but keep asking questions that's the second one responsibility reach out and the third one is reframe it's the ability when you fall down to get back up again it's the time it takes so like you can walk down the street see a hole fall into it the next time you walk down the street you might fall into it again or you might think there's a hole there i mustn't fall in but you still fall in then you walk down the street the next day you see a hole you think i'm not going to fall in that hole this time but then you run and jump into it and eventually as you go around you learn to navigate your way around the hole and bring other people out the hole but reframing is is not never getting it wrong it's having a plan for when it goes wrong like i say to my kids they're teenagers and i say listen at some point right First of all, I'm making this parenting stuff up as I go along. Know that. Second of all, I am going to let you down massively. I am going to massively, I'm going to say something wrong, do something wrong. You're going to be like, oh, no, I'm going to let you down. And you've got to decide what's your attitude going to be when that happens. Decide that now. 
don't wait till it happens because you'll be full of anger and you just want to leave. But mm. make a decision now. When that happens, what are you going to do? Because if you do at that point give up on me, you'll never get to envisage and experience what it is to rebuild that relationship stronger. So make a decision now. And, and I think that's, that's so important. That reframing is so important. So I, like when the lockdown happened, I'm like, oh my gosh, as a chaos navigator, I know what to do in times like this. But there was a moment when I realized that my entire business had gone. I've lost everything. And then I started this scarcity mindset of what if I can't eat? What if I can't pay the mortgage? What if I'm on the streets again? Because I've been mm, there. I know what yeah. I'm and, and I had to reframe in that stance to go, right, okay, focus on what I can control, not on what I can't. Reach out for help, make a request. What, if I need help, ask. If I don't need help, help someone who does need help. And then reframe. And those three things are the reason I have another business now. I'm doing webinars and my human first course, plug, plug. You know, I mean, that's why I have, because reframe is so important to resilience. So it's a yep. practice and it's an intentional choice. It's, that's what's ambitious about it. It's, it's believing beyond what you believe is possible. I love that, Jazz. Thank you for explaining that, yeah. Steve. Um, Jazz, I was just thinking, um, when you talk about university and what we just followed on then, now you went on to have a family, then you talk about breaking the cycle, and obviously... In your TED talk, you sadly mentioned that um, your brother Paul sadly overdosed in the midst of the Apprentice experience. Now, how would that have affected your future plans and work that you do now? Like, how has that built in? Well, yeah, it drove it because mm. I was living. Yeah. Um, I was spending I, when I went to teacher in college. I was the only brown person there, right? Um, which was weird because I'd come from a place where I wasn't the only brown person. And I was also, there's probably three other working class people there. And mm. the, the, the curriculum was very much about them and us rather than they are us. It was like, you know, when you meet a poor child, here is what you must do. And I'm like, this an egg. I better not tell anyone I'm one of them. You know, so I, I kind of learned to lie about who I was and try and blend in with this heart, hair and this backside. I thought somehow I'd be able to blend in with all the white men, but I had a go. And, and it was just about trying to be acceptable not to be accepted because that's a pipe dream I've got more chance of being Scottish or a swordfish than ever being <laughs> accepted but to be to be considered acceptable just to fool someone enough to be acceptable so that was what I set my life upon and when I got my first teaching job you know it was the same thing it was I mean I, I'm, I'm ashamed I'm ashamed but I know with the same resources I would have done it again I, I would like like switch off from child protection issues. I would like excuse myself from anything because I knew that that would out me as knowing too much. And I wanted to pretend that I was, you know, I, I, I invented, I, I pretend I had a brother called Tarquin. I tried to middle-class myself, make myself more acceptable. That's how scared I was of being who I, I was. So the truth about me was that I only ever did as much as was comfortable without me revealing who I really was. And so I developed this kind of persona of being okay and acceptable to everyone else, but never the true me. And when I, I was working in Clacton-on-Sea, lovely place, bit racist, but lovely town. And uh, when I was working there, uh, like everyone around me, all the leaders were white and male and middle-class. And I'm like, I've got no chance of doing that. So mm. I, I've got to make it so that I'm more in that vein to make, and, and, and it sounds ridiculous now talking about it, but my whole life was about trying to be less female, less brown, less working class, L like trying to think differently and be differently and dress differently and appear okay. So. Mm. So the whole thing around being, you know, 
honest. <laughs> it's just like, no, I've spent years crafting a persona on being an expert. Now, unfortunately, I'm very passionate about literacy because reading and writing and spelling were my tools out of mindset poverty, like not just physical poverty, but the reason I could do English is why I made it through school. So incidentally, uh, maths isn't as powerful. Hashtag just saying. But <laughs> if um, because I could do that, it kind of gave me the option before. So I actually got into literacy consultancy and I, I traveled the world, I worked with governments, I, had all, I took people up the Pearl system, I was hugely, I was the Brad Pitt of phonics, I was hugely successful, I advised our government, Jim Rose is my mate, you know, it's all good, but I was never honest about why literacy was important to me, because mm. it got me, I was never honest, because that would require me to be honest. So all the success felt kind of hollow, and people would say, oh my gosh, you trained us 10 years ago, our whole LA changed, we're doing this, we're doing that, we're doing jazzy phonics, and I'd be like, yeah, great. Because it was based on me not being honest. So where's this? it's success, but it wasn't fulfillment-flavoured success. It was just success mm. on its own. It's hollow. So when I was on The Apprentice, um, like no one was allowed to know about it, and I got a call literally the night before it's due to be released in the press from three of my brothers who I haven't spoken to because we're estranged. I mean, I ran away from home. I left them in the horrible situation that I was in, and because I left, it all fell for them. So I'm raked in guilt. You know, we don't talk to each other because I'm the terrible big sister, etc. Even though I was a child myself, I couldn't allow for that. And, um, and three of my brothers rang and I thought they were ringing because they'd seen I was gonna be on The Apprentice. And then I phoned my sister-in-law back who I was least likely to argue with and she said that Paul had taken an overdose and died. And it's just, it just, I don't, I don't know if for anyone who's lost anyone, it's just the end, it's the end. I mean, I, I remember collapsing on the floor and being, like sobbing, making these guttural noises that you make when you're giving birth. That I remember that. I remember being flooded with anger and guilt and denial. And, and I remember having to go to the, back to back to the hometown and trying to get to see his body. But because he took an overdose, they wouldn't. They thought that he's a drug addict, so I must be a drug addict. So they wouldn't let me in the building. And I'm wearing the same coat I was wearing on The Apprentice when I get fired. I'm supposed to be doing an interview on BBC Breakfast, and I'm doing. I mean, that's that was a week of resilience, and I kind of. Mm -hmm. Part of me wanted to do what I'd promised I'd, I'd do, and part of me wanted to die myself. And, and I went through all this. And anyway, we went through the funeral, and we did it all. It was all hell. And towards the end, when that grief tidal wave tsunami becomes like waves that you can surf on, I remember standing at the sink washing up and thinking, I, why am I doing this? I'm, like We had the same experience, the same upbringing, but I had five teachers, and he didn't. I had five people who took the time to believe in me and stand beside me. He didn't. He left school a lot sooner than me. He checked out before I did. He believed the hype about him being, you know, challenging behavior and vulnerable. He just believed it. Whereas I always challenged it and I had people who supported me. That's the only difference. I should be dead and I'm not. I should be him and I'm not. And when I went to identify his body, I looked at him and the first thing I thought was that should have been me. It could have been me and it should have been me and it's not. And, it's, and then I, so I'm washing up and I'm thinking, I'm being a selfish cow. I know how. I know how to navigate this. I know how to change and I'm not telling anyone because I'm hiding who I am. I'm not telling anyone. So I'm seeing that kids now, kids today, are in the same situation I was in, whether it's the hunger or the loneliness or the fear or the lack of belonging or the abuse, they're in the same situation. And I know the system they're in and I'm doing nothing and saying nothing because of my own self-preservation. It's not enough. I will not live like this anymore. So the next talk I did was a talk on literacy. And I went up and said, can I change my slides? And the guy's like, do what you like. So I changed them 
time and off with no plan. I just told a little bit of the truth about myself that I should be dead and I'm not. And it's because of teachers. They're there on a Wednesday night. They could be getting drunk or having sex with a stranger, but they turned up at a teach me because they want to do the best for their kids. And it's because of people like that, that I am even alive. I owe you everything I am and everything I have. And, and I, I just want to be honest about that. And I told this and I thought, I remember thinking to myself, it doesn't matter. No one here knows me. It's edu Twitter. I'm not even on Twitter. So no one knows me. I'll do this and I'll go. But it was Ross McGill was there. Amjab was there. Hannah Wilson. <laughs> the glitterati. Twitter, Twitter. I did it and then it just seemed to resonate people it was 10 minutes but it resonated and people someone mm. videoed it and put it on Twitter it started trending uh, and before I was only trending when I got fired from The Apprentice that was a good thing and then I got a TEDx and then I got a book deal and the very thing that I was the most afraid of everyone knowing about me that I am not good enough was the very thing that gave people agency and not only allowed me to live free of fear but also encourage my peers, my colleagues, the people I love the most on this planet, educators, to step into the who they really are and measure their success, not based on what Ofsted says or what SATs say, which is all data, it's all important, but actually on the fulfillment piece of what they do every single day. Mm. And since that has changed, I've been able to step into the woman I was created to be, not the woman that education, the world, society told me I should be. It's, mm. it's the difference between a life half lived and being liberated. Mm, I love that so much. That takes me to my favorite quote in the mm. TED talk, which is the change won't happen until your desire to make a difference is bigger and stronger and more powerful than your fear of trying. Can you give me some examples now in the work that you do there where you've seen that really kind of come alive, where you've seen that bravery and that desire and um, kind of conquer that, that fear? Great. These are great questions. You're going to do every interview from now on. If anyone else asks for <laughs> So we have to speak to the deputies. I'm sorry, but they do everything. That, that is brilliant. And, and you know, bravery, bravery is great after the fact. While bravery is happening, all this 10% braver stuff, it's all good fun. But it, being braver, that 10% braver is awful because it makes that little bit of sick come up in the back of your mouth and you feel awful. Bravery is not a great thing at the time. It's a great story to tell after when you're safe. Mm. At the time, it sucks. That's why lots of people don't yeah. step into it. And, and bravery could be putting your hand up in a meeting. Mm. Bravery could be saying your school's going to stay closed because it's the safest and kindest thing to do. Bravery could be coming up with a complete remote education system in two days flat and putting teachers on camera and not knowing what's going to happen. I mean, <laughs> bravery is tiny or massive. That's the whole point. It's whatever is just outside your garden of possibility. And so when we talk about bravery, it's different to courage, right? Firefighters are courageous. They see the danger and they run towards it. Bravery is where you are petrified. You see the danger and you know it could crush you and you are so scared. And yet you still choose to take the smallest step in the direction towards something being better. That's what bravery looks like. And so we all get to do that. And I've seen it in people just raising their hand in a meeting. I've seen it in people saying, actually, do you know what? That's 12 hours work and I have four. So my plan is to do this much because I think it will have a big impact. How do you feel about that? To a leader who is before bullied them into making them kind of just, I've seen people treat their well-being as if it is the most powerful resource they have and not a tick list. Mm. I've, I've also seen people say, you know what? There's got to be a better way. We're not doing this anymore. And this is our revolution start. I never start at the top. It's not Boris Johnson going, yeah, you know that money we've given you for wages? You can keep that. And I tell you what, let's just give a bazillion pounds to education and don't worry about sats. Knock yourself out. Sorry about being an idiot all these years. And that's not going to happen. 
If he would have someone who knew what they were doing, that wouldn't happen. Not that Boris doesn't know what he's doing, just think it's very hard job and you've got to be idiot to do it. But I, I, I can't mm. imagine being Prime Minister. But it, it's people who kind of, you know, say revolutions start with one person at the bottom who cares enough to go, do you know what? It's got to be a better way. I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know if anyone's ever succeeded at it, but I'm going to give it a go. Who's with me? That's what bravery looks like. So it could be that you just say, I don't think spelling tests are working because it takes me all of Friday morning and they're all doing the wrong colours, yellow group are crying, and when we're writing next, they're not using the words in the work. I might be getting it wrong, but for the love of Pete, show me a better way. That could be bravery, you know, that's it. Bravery could be speaking out against, calling people out against the values that you've plastered up all around school. That the ones that you've got on the front that cost two TAs for the year that you invested in, but you're not doing it. You say you're doing it, but you're not, that could be bravery. Bravery could be set, could be going back into school when it opens on June the 1st. That's an incredible act of bravery. I mean, it, it's, it's big or small, but I think it starts with intention, it starts with getting off automatic. It starts with believing that you're more powerful than you think you are. It starts with growing, being the, the big elephant you are rather than the small elephant mindset. My friend says this about me. When, when they used to catch elephants, they catch a baby and tie it to a stake in the middle of the village and the elephant will pull, but it can't get away. But over time, the elephant grows, but it's still at night, they're still tied up and it doesn't escape because what it's learned is that it's not strong mm. enough. That's, and if that mm. isn't a metaphor for educators, I don't know what yeah. is. Because if we all said, because right now, like education is, you know, is, is amazing childcare, but asking people to educate and sell, social distance and do an online curriculum and get all this stuff. I mean, are you mad? What, shall, we, shall, we say, shall we find a cure for cancer while we're doing that as well? I mean, it's a lot, you know, it's a lot. But I, I think sometimes being able to stand by your why, know what your why is and stand on it. And it's not a, it's not a revolution with pitchforks. It's Neo at the end of the matrix where it just puts mm. his hand up and says, no that's bravery and so it's it's the thing that you're just that little bit scared of doing but you know that if you do could open so many doors to to fulfill your why it's getting out of your own way and and i, d I don't care how big or small it is i just care that people either do it or own that they're not ready what i what i struggle with is when people say well it's because what too many boys or it's the government. What can you do? Where is the system? We're the freaking system. We're doing, we're the system. We are doing, it's people who say, I have no agency. Liar. I call you out on that. You have agency. You're not brave enough to use it. Own it. Say, I'm not ready. Because when you are ready, it'll be an easier transition and you won't feel as guilty and that won't hold you back. Instead of choosing guilt, choose gratitude for knowing that you're not ready. Own it and look to the future. Does that make sense? I sound like I'm running for the president of the United States here. I just want a better system. I just want, I just want people to, to, to be, I want waggle humans so that kids yeah. can, can see Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Mm. You know? We'll be your campaign team, Jazz. All right? <laughs> We've got your back on this. <laughs> Beautiful. And it's true. It so is, yeah. Uh, Jess, can I latch on to that? Well, as you're talking, all I was thinking about, you talk about teachers needing to realise they're good enough um, and that they're not just, they're, they're not ordinary um, as they think that. Right now, there's going to be loads of teachers out there and our listeners who are feeling flat, they're feeling underappreciated and they're feeling that ordinary and they've probably been sucked into the newspaper headlines that they've seen that they're doing a crappy job, basically. What would you want to say to them? First of all, I am, you know, well... Here's the thing. When things are like this, I, you, we can choose like between being intentional and being accidental. And the automatic me wants to get angry about it. 
on the behalf of educators wants to call you know be, be quite rude and call i could quite happily punch people in the throat i mean i have got i have i'd make an incredible criminal if i didn't have morals i'd be an amazing criminal. i am a loss to the criminal underworld <laughs> so i do often go straight to um you know dreaming of violence or hurting people because I'm, I'm basically i'm a street kid at heart so I, and my, automatically i do want to get cross and i do want to get angry and I do want to get sucked into that. But what was interesting on the night that Boris gave a um, talks about schools going back on the 1st of June, people took to Twitter and automatically and with full obvious, you know, of course you would, were cross and were angry and were scared and were sarcastic and were fearful and did what they expressed themselves in that way. The head of my junior school sent an email straight out, my kids' junior school, saying, listen, we've seen the... Uh, We've seen the announcement as well. We want to tell you that as soon as it's safe, we'll have your kids back, but not until it's safe. Until then, we'll do everything we can to support you. We love you. You are not being asked to homeschool your children. You're being asked to help us keep the country going. We will do everything we can for you. We're here for you. Here are the ways that we're showing up for you if you need any more askers. And when your kids come back, they're not going to be behind. Relieve yourself from worrying about that. When they come back, we will meet them where they are and we will take them where they need to be. And we do that because we love your kids and we are for them. Know that we are for you. And I went to bed that night without being scared because the head of that school took an amazing step in reassuring people and meeting them where they were. The head of the secondary school, I'm, my kids are in amazing schools. I'm very, very blessed. Same sort of thing. Sent an email saying, right, listen, seven, eight, nine, we're not going to see you, all right? Let's just say that. We're not going to see you, but we're going to do everything we can to stand with you and work with you. It, it just kind of relieved that. Mm. It just took the stress off. Now, right now, People are going back and they're going to be trying to, it's the, what I don't want for educators is to have this mindset of going back to normal because that's gone. We're not going back to normal. Normal is gone. We're going forward to something that new is, is new and different. And here's why that's good news because you get to design a teaching life that is in alignment with your why and on your terms. You get to call the shots because right now, all the times when you've said, well, we can't because of Ofsted, well, we can't because of facts, well, we can't, none of that is there nothing is there so right now you're not being asked to be a puppet master no a monkey the organ grinder you know the thing that moves when someone else tells it you're not being asked to do that you're being asked to lead you're being asked to make your decisions with your heart and your head to serve your community to show up for your family to protect your staff your parents your students that's what that's what's being asked of us now the government aren't doing it in that many words because you know they're a bit anal about this but that that is the request mm -hmm. and i think at the moment if you what the mistake that everyone is could make is that we go forward into something that's new and different with the mindset of what was before. So now is, I did a manifesto when this first happened for teachers. It's like 15 videos, 15 rules, a little poster. And it said like, be human first. Now is not the time to in, um, indulge in imposter syndrome. Authenticity is your superpower. You know, mess it up, forgive yourself, go again. It was just kind of giving this kind of manifesto for a way of being a mindset. And I think that's what's really important because if you go into this new normal with the old normal mindset of, oh, I'm not good enough and I've got to wait to see someone to tell me what to do and I won't try in case it goes wrong and, and it's not worth it because I just get ripped a new one. All that was true. But, but now is a time where it can be different. And the only thing that will hold us back is our inability to be agile. I used to ask people, if you didn't have to do grammar, if spag wasn't a thing, what would you still do? What would you still teach if you didn't have to do sats? And then we'd come up with a list of the things we'd really want to create and teach. And then my next question was, well, how can we do that anyway? And that's really what I want for education. Rather than seeing the limitations and the constraints, I want them to see the immense ability they have for power for change in individual children in their class and so going back 
is about or going to school or, or engaging in whatever way it is it's about what it's always been about but we've ignored it before it's about well-being but it's not well-being anymore it's being it's not an optional extra anymore we're all we've all been locked up with our kids for eight weeks we've all got mental health <laughs> issues now so, you know there's a level of there and it's, it's it's not about well-being it's about being it's about going back and the worst thing you can do is go back and, and try and show oh you're all right everything's fine it's like if i haven't seen you for six months and you i say how you been and you say i've had cancer but i'm all right now i go oh well that's good i'm glad you're all right now let's go to nando's no i'm dismissing the fact that you lived through a trauma that you, you thought you were going to die for crying out loud. That needs addressing and acknowledging. And we've all been in a similar situation. So the most important thing to do is to step into the people we actually are. Mm. And to, it's, it's not about sharing everything and disclosing, but it is about being human first. It is about saying, you know what? I don't know what the future is. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that right now and here, this is what I can, can control. And this is the absolute best I can do with the resources I have available. And I'm trying to live my life in a way that when this is over, future jazz of 2021 or 2030, future jazz will look back at this time and go, that's exactly what I would have done with the resources I had available at the time. And that's the story I want educators to be able to tell in the future. Because we're going to be telling this story for the rest of our lives. This is our 2020 story. We're Generation C. I wrote the thing about Generation C being Generation COVID-19, Generation Corona, but it's not because of educators. If they make the choice, it's going to be Generation Creativity, Generation Courage, Generation Change, Generation Character, Generation Complexity, Generation Chaos Navigation, Generation Check Yourself Before You Wreck Yourself. It's going to be different because we set the tone. We write the story. And if we don't like the way a story is going, now is the time to change it. So I, I understand people being scared. I understand people being afraid. And I implore leaders, I implore leaders to be human first in a way that meets people where they are. And rather than trying to put the, I've got to deliver this amazing curriculum and catch up. You can't catch up if the whole country stopped, can you? Everyone's behind. It's not a race. You're not going to get extra money because they get to the, they understand the bus stop method for long division. That's not the most important thing now. Whether you are down with Maslow's hierarchy of needs or not, people need to be safe. They need to be well and they need to be seen. And that's teachers and parents and students. We're all in the same place. So what does a curriculum look like that allows for those three things before it starts banging away about semicolons? That's what I want to do. And we do that in the smallest moments. We do that in the way we meet people on the door, in the way they come in. This school my kids out, when it was snowing, all the teachers came out and lined up and you could drive around and drop them off. Or the teachers would, as people were coming in, slipping, because you didn't have to go in. They were clapping and going, well done for making it. We're really glad to see you. That is what it's like to be part of a family. That's what it's like. I'm, as a parent of that school, I am. they are for me. And because they are for me, I love them because they love me first. And because they are for me, I'll do anything for them because they meet me where I am, scared, worried that I'm not doing a good enough job at home school. And the thing is for teachers, they try and be all things to all people and I really want them to just be them and, and make it okay to be them. And in doing so, make it okay not to be okay because together mm. is how we get through this, not on our own. It's a huge ask and as usual, everyday heroes at the forefront, as usual, teachers setting the tone and drive, as usual. I, I'd love for people to actually own their excellence and say, wear a t-shirt saying awesome by choice not by accident you know i've done the work you know only i'd love them to step into that but I'll, I'll wait i'll be prepared to wait for that if they can at least just be who they are do what they want the kids to do first themselves but dream and believe in, in themselves before they ask kids to do it and and and, set, and be honest about not knowing what's happening when can i go swimming again that's what a year one asked me on the last day when can i go swimming again and I wanted to cry. My heart's breaking. 
I'm looking at this little five-year-old. I'm angry at some virus I've got no control over. When can I go swimming again? And the TA that was next to me went, you know, I'm not sure about that, but I'm gonna, we're going to have a talk about that when we get together. So let's, let's put our stuff in, go and sit down, and let's talk about the things that we're worried about and what we can focus on. That, that's some TA, random TA standing next to me. I didn't have any words. I wanted to cry. And she totally waggled that situation out of me. They, these are the people, that, if, they, if, there's, if there was anyone who could cause a revolution in society, it's teachers, especially primary school, especially early years. If there was anyone who could lead the way right now, it's educators, but we need to step into it and not live mm -hmm. as if we've got this shadow hanging over us of what we're allowed and not allowed to do. Jazz, thank you for a beautiful conversation. It has been a pleasure. I can't tell you how much value and joy you've added to my life. If you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did, then here is some information from Jazz about the work that she does and what she may be able to offer you or your organisation. I do quite a lot in terms of helping people step in to how powerful I know they are, especially when it comes to educators but at home and at work. So one of the things I'm doing at the minute is a human first course and it's four weeks of 15 minute videos. And if you can't find 15 minutes for yourself, then you found me at the right time. 15 minutes a week that just give you kind of pause for thought and give you a different way of looking at things. Um, there is a play sheet because we're not doing any work, but that's optional. And there is a 45 minute Zoom once a week that I go on and kind of chat and answer questions. But really it's, it's, the, it's a gift that I can do for the education system to help them step into this role of being leaders, which they always have been and always will be, but will need to be slightly different in the new, new normal. So I'd love for you to check it out. Uh, the link's going to be shared. Uh, have a look. And if it's something that you think will be resourceful to you, then come join me. I'd love to have you there. Don't keep the deputy.